Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Bibles and turn to Joshua, Joshua chapter 9, Joshua chapter 9. One thing that I forgot to mention uh, during our prayer time too, just as a praise as well. Uh, Last week I had mentioned continued prayer for uh, Jim and Elsie Trone and Jim is home now, which is a praise and uh, continue to pray for healing uh, for him. And uh, it's still kind of a long journey, but it's a praise that he was on the event and he got that off and he was able to talk and eat. And so that was an answer to prayer. So just an update for you all as we shared that this last week, try to keep you informed. Joshua chapter 9. And uh, as you're kind of getting there, uh, one of the things I want you to wrestle with or ask the question of, and we've already been uh, talking about this just in sharing the mountains we face or the mountains that have been overcome by the through the faithfulness and the, the power of God. And we've been going through this series focusing on the reality that God is bigger. And we're going to continue along that uh, today. But I want you to, to think a little more specifically Uh, Based in your story, right where you're at today, um, what has the Lord brought you out of in order to bring you into where you are today? What has the Lord brought you out of that has led to where you can look back and see, God, I see your faithfulness in how this played out today. And the reason I ask this question is because it's really difficult when you're in the midst of that trial, when you're in the midst of that hardship, when you're facing the mountain to answer the question, why? What's the purpose in this? And those are often the times when we can become the most in despair and the most anxious and the most upset because we don't know. We don't, we don't know how this is going to unfold. We don't know how this is going to come to be. We don't know how we're going to get through this. And then we do. And the Lord reveals once again His faithfulness to His people. And... Ultimately, what this really brings about is this recognition that we should grasp in that we will never get to the next phase if we remain in the state of being we're in today. We will never grow further if we become contented with where we're at right now. And the reason I bring this up is because our tendency, our natural bent is to do whatever we need to do to remain comfortable. 
And yet, what I want you as the church to see and to understand is that God's faithfulness in the face of the mountains, God's consistency in the midst of the trial, is making in you as a people, in us, something far beyond what any one of us could conjure up on our own. But we fight this. And we fail at this. And so we need to come back and be reminded of the Lord's faithfulness. And ultimately, if nothing else, you get nothing else out of today. I want you to grab hold of this truth that we're going to see as we dive into Joshua 9 through chapter 11 today. And that is that God fights battles on behalf of his people. Depend on him. God is fighting for his people And what we're going to see is, has already fought for you. But you need to wrestle with whether or not you depend on His power and His authority and His sovereignty. Or if you're depending upon something else. Now, we're going to cover a wide range today. And we're not going to read every single verse. And this is where I want to challenge you. Each week, I want to challenge you to read these chapters before we get to them. And this week, we're going to be in really 9 through 11. 12 is part of that, but 12 kind of summarizes all of the kings that were defeated. Next week, I'm going to give you your homework ahead of time, okay? Next week, we're going to be in probably the biggest section of Joshua we're going to take a chunk of. In this whole series, we're going to look at Joshua 13 through 19 next week. So I want you this week, I want you to challenge yourself to read Joshua 13 through 19. Now I will preface this and say, most people skip over this part of Joshua because it's a lot of repetition. It's a lot of big names, but it is part of God's word. And we believe that the whole counsel of God's word is beneficial. So I want to challenge you to read it. Okay, Read about God giving the inheritance of the land to his people. And we're going to talk about it next week and draw that out more. But today I want us to root into really chapters 9 through 11. And I'm going to jump around a little bit uh, in sections of this and summarize other sections. So I'm going to ask you to follow along with me. And where we're at at this point is... The Lord has brought this people to the promised land. The Lord has brought this people out of Egypt and into the promised land, fulfilling a promise he made to Abraham, clear back in the book of Genesis. So when you think about God's faithfulness to bring you through a season and into his promises, into an inheritance, we're seeing that lived out in the narrative of Joshua. And where we find ourselves here is right after the fall of Ai that we talked about last week. They've just read, they've read the whole law to all the people, all the law for all the people. And we pick up in verse 1 
of chapter 9. Let's read this together. It says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea, towards Lebanon and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took out worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn and torn, mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly and they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where did you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord, your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. These garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them, to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, broadly speaking, we can summarize this section of Joshua and call it the deception of Gibeon. Here's this nation who ultimately recognized something had taken place and decided in and amongst themselves, we're going to be kind of keen and crafty and deceive the nation of Israel into uh, allowing us favor amongst them. Now, one of the things that we may not notice as we read through this that should stick out is if we go back and look at verse 3, it actually says that when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they responded in this way. Now there's one problem with that method of thinking, and it's the fact that Joshua didn't do any of it. And we read the story and the narrative through Joshua, we come to the pretty quick realization that Joshua and the nation of Israel in and of themselves are incapable of carrying out that which they had been called to. Apart from the Lord, they could do nothing. This was most visible in the sin of Achan when they tried to go up against Ai the first time and were driven out and defeated. But what is really intriguing is that then if we fast forward to verse 9 of chapter 9, look at what Gibeon communicates to Joshua. It says, they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in 
Ashtaroth. So even in the language they use, man, these guys are clever. To the point they're deceiving even the motive behind where their fear and their anxiety is rooted. Because in verse 3, it makes clear, we've heard about what Joshua has done. We're, we're, we're afraid of Joshua. We're afraid of this nation. But when communicating this, well, it's because of the Lord. It's because of your God. That's, that's why we have come to you from this distant land. But something happens in verse 14 that if you mark in your Bibles, I encourage you to mark, underline, box, make a note next to the last section of verse 14, because this is where the biggest hiccup happens. The men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. It didn't say they didn't ask questions. In fact, if we go back, they were skeptical, right? These guys were hesitant. Whoa, wait a minute. Where are you from? What if you guys are actually from amongst us and you're just tricking us and telling us you're not? Oh, no, look, look at this worn out stuff. We've traveled a great distance. This bread was new. No, it wasn't. These wineskins were new. No, they weren't. From the outside... All appearances would communicate that their story was true. And so it wasn't that the leaders of Israel were just completely oblivious. They they were skeptical. But they failed to seek the counsel of the Lord. And as a result, they end up in this really precarious situation. And the rest of chapter 9 details this struggle they now have because now they have made a covenant oath with this nation only to discover they've been deceived. Now, maybe you have found yourself in a similar predicament before where you sought to do the right thing and yet now you find yourself in another situation going, what do I do because I should have done this back here, but I can't stop what I did there and now I'm in this situation and the reality is I just come to a place where I have to be faithful and accept the consequences for what I've chosen. Here is a perfect example of the nation of Israel now having a permanent consequence amongst them because they didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. Why is this a problem? Well, if you were to go back and read what God specifically spoke to the nation of Israel, he said there's to be no one left. You're not to partner with other nations. You're not to marry with them. You're you're not. This is not to happen. Yet, they failed to seek the counsel of the Lord. Now, the practical gospel application of this, church, where the rubber meets the road for you and I, God's wisdom is available. Seek it out. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, You should seek God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But when you ask, don't doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. But when you ask, you should ask in faith. How easy is it for you and I to convince ourselves that I've got all the insight and all the wisdom and all the knowledge I need to take this on? How easy is it for us to convince ourselves, that's okay, I know enough, 
I got this. And then we wrestle with why we end up in the predicament we end up in. It's because time and time and time again, and church, as always, I'm putting myself in the same boat as you. We fail to seek the counsel of the Lord. There is a reason that the percentage of people who faithfully pray in the church is so low. It's because it reveals that you and I really don't depend on the wisdom of the Lord. And I desire that that change. I I, I long for that to shift and change. And I'm working for that to shift and change even in my own life. Because I see my tendency when things come about. My first gut response is usually not prayer. And I'm going to guess in your own life that's probably true too. Why? Because you and I are prone to take these things into our own hands. How do we begin seeking the wisdom of God in the decisions we make? It begins with us spending a lot more time on our knees and say, Lord, I don't know. Give me wisdom and discernment and direction as to what I need to do. Now, one of the things we have to recognize in this, when you ask for wisdom from God, it does not mean he's going to give you the answer you want. And if you want that confirmation, open your Bible and read passages like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God, this person is driving me nuts. Give me wisdom to know what to do and how to treat them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, but God, you don't understand who this person is. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That would be the wisdom of God. That would be what God is saying to you. Because God's will will never contradict God's word. So if you read something in scripture and you're praying, Lord, I'm reading. Give me wisdom. Give me discernment. Give me direction. And you come to something and it communicates clearly. Go into all the world sharing the gospel with the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm not an evangelist. Go into all the world. Share the gospel with all the nations, baptizing them. But Lord, I'm so busy. Go into all the world. You you get my point, right? The wisdom of the Lord is available. Seek it out. Do it actively. You want confirmation that you're going to get yourself into the least amount of predicaments. Doesn't mean you won't still fail at this. You will. And we're going to get into that more. Seek the wisdom of the Lord out. Now, at this point, Gibeon becomes protected by this oath that Israel has made with them. And in chapter 10, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, becomes concerned. And the reason he becomes concerned is because as you read through chapter 10, you understand that Gibeon is actually a pretty good-sized city. And it identifies in chapter 10 that all of the men in Gibeon were military men. So these other nations are looking at this and going... Gibeon surrendered without a fight. They literally just went to Israel and surrendered and gave themselves up. Said, we will serve you as the nation of Israel. Well, what happens as a result of this is there's five kings that get together and they decide to go up in battle against Gibeon because they had joined forces with Israel. Interesting note we could make here is they didn't join forces and go up against Israel. Why is that? Chances were the same reason Gibeon was fearful. These other nations were also fearful. Jericho's gone. I is gone. 
this is a pattern. But you know what? Gibeon, they're not Israel. So let's go. Let's go attack them. You know, they they betrayed the rest of us. Let's go attack them. Well, so Gibeon attacks them. Or the, these nations attack Gibeon. And Gibeon sends for Israel, says, help us. You know, you made an oath with us that we're being attacked. So Israel shows up and God moves in just a miraculous, powerful way. Let's see what happens in chapter 10. I'm going to start at verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Zekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Zekah and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ahalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, one of the things I want you to do is mark in your Bibles, if you do that in the end of verse 14, where it says simply for the Lord fought for Israel. Hang on that for a second and turn over with me to verse 40, verse 40 through 43. This conquest continues. They continue in battle. And it says, so Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So again, I want you to mark or underline the end of verse 42 because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Here's the gospel application, church. God's power is unbeatable. Depend on it. Here's another notation we can see in the text of Joshua. God does not need an army to accomplish His will. He chooses to use people for His purposes. God is fully capable of using stones from the sky and stopping the sun and the moon to accomplish His purposes. The God of creation 
fought for Israel. Therefore, they were successful. Here's where we get this mixed up, church. Too often, we say, God, I am fighting for you. Therefore, you should do what I think you should do. Uh Uh-uh. This is not how this works. This is not a negotiation. God is the creator of the universe. And as sovereign Lord and God over all things, He can choose to do as He pleases. Whether we like that or not, it is true. Here's where this comes full circle. God's power is unbeatable. And God has made himself present in us as created beings through Jesus. Think about that for a moment. God has every right to see our sin and just annihilate us completely. Oftentimes I'll have people come and, and they, the question that revolves around in people's minds all the time. Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? And I have one of my elders, the many you say that, he goes, there's no such thing as a good person. Yes, Romans says that. I love you, brother. <laughs> but here's the reality in that. What we deserve as sinners is so much more than difficulty in life. And God's grace and mercy is evident in the fact that He does not give us what we deserve. And in fact, not only that, but He uses that which happens in our lives to make us more like His Son. His power is unbeatable. Depend on it. Now you may hear this and you think, Matt, you have no idea what I'm facing right now. The chances are so slim. The hope is so little. The odds are stacked against me. Well, let's keep reading into chapter 11 and see if we can bring any further reassurance. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 11. When Jobin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, the king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshaph, And to the kings who were in the northern hill country and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth and in the lowland and in Nafroth Dor on the west to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. The Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrepoth Maim, 
And it's as eastward as far as the valley of Mitzpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. What were the physical odds of Israel defeating these armies? Time and again we see descriptive words give a picture that portrays there's no chance. Any other group of people would have looked at this horde of armies, turned and fled, thinking about the sands of the seashore. An army so numerous it was described in that way. What is it that propelled this people to run into battle with such confidence? It's because the group of people here recognized that their God was bigger than any physical army that they would face on earth. Now that's what we've been talking about in our theme, and you're not going to get out of here today without proclaiming this, this truth that God is bigger And so in the midst of this, we look at this narrative and we look at the confidence of the nation of Israel. The Lord saying, do not be afraid of them. And they rushed into battle and were victorious. Why? Because they knew that one, two, three. I think we can do better. They rushed into battle with confidence because they knew that one, two, three. Amen. Where the rubber meets the road, church, we have to figure out what our primary battle is. For the nation of Israel, over and over again, when they lost the battle against their flesh, they lost with it the physical battle they were fighting on earth. If they maintained the commands of the Lord when they chose to follow His lead, Then, and only then, were they an unstoppable force. For you and I, Ephesians 6 tells us we don't fight against flesh and blood. It's not our primary battle. Now, that is not saying that you don't battle against your physical, fleshly impulses to sin. Because Galatians says the opposite. It says there's this war going on between our flesh and the spirit. This is a constant ongoing battle. When Scripture in Ephesians 6 says we don't battle against flesh and blood, what it means is your primary enemy is not the person in this room. It's not the culture out of these walls. It's not another person. Your primary enemy is the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what Ephesians 6 says. Here's where the hope and the promise intersects. When we see What's happening in the Old Testament and the presence of the Lord with the nation of Israel. God has already won your primary battle in Christ. Embrace that. What do I mean by this? The number one battle that you and I face is a battle that anyone who has sinned That is, fallen short of the holy standard of God Himself is unworthy to be in the presence of God. And day after day after day, you and I see the visible battle of this. That's what Galatians is talking about. Man, this is hard. 
to fight against our own fleshly impulses, to forsake anything to do with what we've been called to in Christ, according to God's word, and do our own thing. And so as we look at that, that's not a good thing. And this is where what Christ accomplished intersects with what we could not. The hope and truth that we have to cling to, the victory that we have to cling to, is this reality that Christ came and died in our place and then was resurrected for God to testify once and for all that He and He alone has power and authority over death and sin itself. Why? So that we could walk in newness of life and experience a rebirth where we are no longer who we once were, but have been brought into the family of God in Christ. That's the greatest mountain that has ever been overcome, church. And the God we worship, the God of the Bible, the God of creation, is the same God who made a way for you to overcome that mountain. Don't convince yourself that He won't make a way for you to encounter the mountain you face today. God is bigger. As we close today, here's what I want to do. I want you to turn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. And I want to read this. This is one of my favorite psalms. I come back to this, I think, every single week. And I'm going to read this, and then we're going to just listen to a song and reflect on this. The song is based directly in Psalm 46, and it speaks very clearly to the application of Psalm 46, which directly ties into acknowledging who God is, who God's revealed himself to be through the narrative of Joshua. What, what do I do with all of this? Here's what Psalm 46 says. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Would you stand with me, church? Fathers, we go from here. May we testify to how good you are. 
Lord, how faithful you are. Lord, of your righteousness. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to find our hope and our strength in you and in you alone. God, that we would be faithful to take hold of the opportunities to testify of your faithfulness in our own lives. And Lord, to share humbly when we need others to come alongside. Lord, all of these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, we pray all of this. Amen. Thanks for being here, everyone. Have a great rest of your Sunday.